this week on Breaking Badness. Today we discuss password to the wise, discussing Cisco Talis blog on what authentication text might look like in a phishing resistant future. Next up, regulation, no breaching. SEC approves new cyber reporting regulations for public companies. And our fun game, Gold Guidance and Grievances. With that, Breaking Badness is next. Welcome to Breaking Badness, episode number 163, recorded on July 31st, 2023. I'm your co-host, Callie Loner, Rebel, Fencil. With me is co-host Ian, head in the clouds, Consul Campbell. And last but not least is Daniel, compliance is not security, Schwalbe. Welcome, everybody. Hello, hello. Have we done this combination before? I think once. Once. Yeah, maybe oh. six months ago. Okay. It was a while ago. That's fun. I, I got in trouble for uh, uh, giving Daniel too much snark, so oh. I'm gonna be uh, I'm gonna be a more reserved version of myself <laughs> this time. I believe it when I hear it. Yeah, that's that's totally why this combo hasn't happened again. <laughs> if I can remember. Um, so what's going on? Everybody doing all right? No. Uh, currently, it's a Monday, so, so give me another 48 hours or so, and I'll have an idea of what's going on. Yeah. I mean, it is summertime, and the living is supposed to be easy, but I don't know about it's that. It's not that easy, especially, uh, you know, on today, the day we lose uh, Paul Rubens, Pee-wee, Pee-wee Herman. Sad. Yeah. Offer one more big adventure in the sky. Oh, that's a good one. I like that. But yeah, that's... Inspir- inspiration for my fun name today because I'm a big fan of that movie. Um, Do we get censored if we swear on the podcast? I mean, which word are you going to use? <laughs> I'm going to say fuck cancer. Oh, okay. You know what? I'll, I'll, I'll allow it. And then if I think better of it, I will uh, I'll fix it in post. You, you can bleep <laughs> I can bleep you. I've, I've done it before, Daniel, and I will do it again. <laughs> All right, deal. Yeah, but no, but seriously, I'm, I'm over cancer for sure. But yeah, any, um, I get we we shouldn't start out the show this way. We sh- we started out the last show with also like a like a very sad announcement. We can't we can't do this again. So um, what else? What else? Cool, well, cool. Next week, is, <laughs> next week is Black Hat. I'm looking forward to that. I mean, who doesn't want to go to uh, 120 degree in the shade hellhole in uh, uh, August? But, you know, it'll be awesome. You're, you're doing a good job my, selling it. <laughs> yeah, my sympathy for you is at an all-time high, Daniel, I gotta say. Yeah, Black Hat is next week. Um, Daniel will be there. Um I will unfortunately not be there, but Tim Helming will be there. So if you are a fan of the podcast, um, please um, visit our booth or hit hit up Tim Helming if if you want to talk with him for for a little bit. We'd love to have you on the podcast. We did that for RSA. Um, call back to to our RSA mini series, uh, which I'll link in the show notes. But yeah, we'll we'll be doing that again, which is fun. And. Uh- Live, Daniel offers a, a in-person version of his password strength uh, detector. So if you walk up to him and tell him all your passwords, he'll tell you how strong they are. 
Absolutely. Uh, I will be available for all that. <laughs> what What happens if you have a really strong password? Do you win something? Uh, probably a scolding. A scolding? Why? Because you just told me to, your password. Oh, okay. Never okay. tell your password. You don't get a big old stuffed animal. <laughs> well, you, you might get a whole lot of less money in your bank account, but uh, not, are you, not for are me, you, of course. Oh, I was like, are you stealing the money? No, but people will overhear it, and it's Black Hat. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say Daniel is the one that will end up with the big stuffed animal. Yes. <laughs> and that's on my mind because the, the fair was, well, not the fair, but it was like a carnival. It was just in town. So you can imagine. Um, all right. Well, maybe we should we should dive into some of these articles. What do you say? Let's do it. Let's do yeah. it. All right. We'll start. We'll start off with uh, Password to the Wise, which is... Uh, you know, from our friends at Cisco Talus, and they're discussing what authentication might look like in a phishing-resistant future uh, on their blog. So, Ian, uh, the authors discuss different types of authentication, and you know, this is a podcast, so people can't see the table um, that they they put in their uh, blog. But I will list it again there uh, for reference. Um, but that in that table, um, they have you know what's most vulnerable. Uh, to various attacks going down to um, device-bound pass keys being more secure. Do you, do you agree with how that table is organized or do you see any room for improvement? I think the table's well done given the scope that they're looking for in the post. It's a good brief in- infographic to provide a certain model in, in at-a-glance fashion. Um, so, you know, prime uh, uh, prime work for a blog post, um, but given that it also oversimplifies, as any model does, um, the old saying "all models are false, some are useful" applies here, and this one's definitely useful for setting a frame of discussion. But I do think it downplays the human and social uh, social engineering aspects a little too much versus uh, the technical. How hard would it be to get social engineering into a table? <laughs> I don't know. Stop <laughs> on that one. Uh, I suppose it depends on if there's a door charge. I ask the tough questions. <laughs> well. I mean, obviously, we recently lost one of the great social engineers that people have lots of uh, uh, opinions about. But um, I, I think it's uh, uncontested that social engineering was uh, high on Kevin Mitnick's skill list. So uh, I think it's always going to be um, prevalent. But tableifying it and you know analyzing it left, up, down, and right is probably a difficult ask. True, but. Do we do this because we uh, because it's easy, no. or because we thought it would be easy? Yes, we always do things because they're hard. <laughs> Ian, um, how recently would you say that multi-factor authentication has been deemed not as safe as pass keys? Is it a newer revelation? I think it's 
been a couple of years since we started seeing longitudinal research from bigger organizations like Google about how requiring multi-factor auth completely changed the landscape as far as successful attacks go. But of course, some attackers never sleep either. They continue to refine their own practices and adapt techniques just like defenders. So MFA interception and other workarounds became a field of experimentation in advance. First, it was uh, SMS for uh, MFA versus authentication app MFA, in which a gap widened. And now the same for MFA versus passkeys. I'm not sure of the hard research there, though. I haven't seen as much research about passkeys versus MFA as uh, compared to traditional auth versus MFA. But if anyone listening out there has it in hand, hit me up. I think passkeys are a good idea in principle, but as always with these things, actual implementation, you know, as with my, you know, IT support hat on, uh, which I also do in addition to security, um, I can already foresee the you know, help desk overhead on trying to figure out how people or help people figure out how to implement it, how to use it, et cetera. So I, I could see maybe the focus on passkey on sort of the higher level uh, access. So if you want to you know, need to become root on a system, that might be a, a good first target. But for everyday uh, authentication, I think that's a bit of a tall order. And also there are legacy systems that just simply will never support it. And so then you're going to have to have some sort of proxy shim in between and what could possibly go wrong with that? <laughs> totally. Um, so the authors also mentioned that device-bound passkeys release the user from the burden of creating and memorizing unique and complex passwords. Um but what, I mean, you know, this could be for both of you. Um, what are your thoughts? You know, I guess, Daniel, you just gave us some of your thoughts, but please, please provide more if you want on, on those pass keys. Like, you know, okay. at, what have you been hearing in the community? Is, is the community largely in agreement or, and what about regular users too? Like, what do you think that, that reaction will be? So uh, you definitely, um, heard some of Daniel's thoughts a moment ago, and I'm going to dovetail with those uh, coming from user-based IT routes. I worry a lot about device-bound pass keys in the sense that things inevitably happen to user devices. If it's a business issue, hopefully there's an IT department to help sort it out, but obviously that takes cycles from uh, what the rest of the, uh, what the people are doing the rest of the time, what the uh, user support folks are trying to focus on. But for individual users, accidents, loss, and theft theft can lead to complete account lockout and utter chaos, especially when you're dealing with behemoth organizations like Google that still don't seem to care much about individual user support. Horror stories still emerge of people getting locked out of their entire Google-bound lives and Google being either unreachable or unwilling to help. Um, I don't know that there's a, a community consensus around passkeys right now. I think everybody's waiting to see uh, what the actual implementations look like and then um, what that looks like out in the real world once the users get their hands on it. Um, I think uh, uh, I partially end up a little extra paranoid. Um, and one of the things I'm also seeing is uh, people storing 
like storing passwords and one-time pads in the same password manager. And it, it, it makes me wonder about why they're doing it and what the threat profile is and what that actually prevents if they're storing it in the same place. So I worry about uh, implementation and I worry about what things look like uh, out in the real, real world, but I also worry too much. So it may be that I'm, I'm uh, underestimating people. You worry? <laughs> <laughs> no, like I'm over here calling the pot, like pot calling the kettle black <laughs> in terms of worry. I think I definitely agree with, with Ian's um, summary here. I think, I mean, it's uncontested that humans are terrible at picking strong passwords. We're just not designed for that. And then, you know, memorizing them is a whole nother uh, story. Uh, but that's kind of what password managers are for. And I realize they still require some kind of password to unlock the vault or whatever. Uh, but uh, I, at this point, feel passkeys are still very much in the fad territory. Uh, if they catch on and uh, it like becomes more popular, I could see it. But I think a lot of our colleagues and maybe myself to a degree included, I'm like, I'm not sure how much time and effort I want to invest in that right now because maybe it's one of those things that gets killed next year and then you know put in all this effort and then like oh well it wasn't wasn't the right thing I mean I remember multi-factor I think it was still effectively called two-factor authentication in like the late 90s early 2000s with this like credit card sized uh, secure ID card. Yeah, the RSA secure ID. Yeah. I, I had one of those as recently as 2017. Yeah, and we had them in the early 2000s uh, to secure a mainframe of all places um, because it could only accept eight-character passwords because it was so old. But uh, So it's been around for a while, but then it was felt very niche and I don't think anybody of us would have predicted in, in 2000 that it would uh, catch on widely and then secure your Gmail account. Effectively, the same thing. It's still time-based uh, sequencing of, of codes. Uh, so I think passkeys have a way to go to find more widespread accept uh, acceptance. And if they catch on, I think it's a, a, a good another arrow in the quiver, but in and of itself, I unfortunately don't hold out too much hope that they'll be, you know, the savior of the uh, authentication world. Well, we're still going to talk about it some more, Daniel. Excellent. <laughs> All right. So, Ian, uh, I feel like whenever I say your name, it's like you're in trouble. Like, Ian, sit down. I'm used to it. <laughs> Stop pulling your sister's hair. Uh, can you talk about how passwordless authentication impacts registration, recovery, and revocation? Um, and you're not far off the uh, the scolding, by the way. I'm the youngest of four boys. What? So. This is the first yep. I'm hearing about this. Yep. What was that um, like? <laughs> it, it was a fair amount of... Uh, um, uh, uh, my name coming out when I did something wrong, but me uh, uh, being the youngest, testing all the uh, uh, all the limitations and all the uh, restrictions more than my older siblings. Yeah, because well, I'm also a youngest child, so I get it. 
but yeah, um, in terms of passwordless authentication, um, Talos wisely brings up in the post that if the landscape involves passwords becoming defunct, attackers will shift to other methods to try and exploit weaknesses whenever possible. And often those weaknesses can be found in processes. This is the other side of the coin regarding my complaint about Google a minute ago, that by definition, re-registering a device or recovering an account has to occur in a less secure manner in order to assist the user, since they likely don't have the device to which uh, auth has been previously bound. Okay. And, and then the, the article also mentioned that the phishing strategy could move from stealing login credentials to targeting session IDs. And I was hoping maybe you could expand on that a little for our audience. Only hypothetically. Otherwise, my lawyer will get mad. Um, <laughs> Is your lawyer Dan? Uh, oh, God, no. He, he'd have even more gray hair. <laughs> that one. I, that... I only play a lawyer on the podcast. I was like, is that one of the hats? <laughs> um uh, in terms of targeting session IDs, that's mostly a reference around token jacking. Uh, whenever you sign into a web service, it creates a session, and that session is usually managed by a token, often some sort of string your browser stores and refers to. But that string of characters can be unceremoniously ganked by malware on your device or stolen in a uh, server-in-the-middle attack. One of the threat landscapes I pay attention to is the cryptocurrency space, not because I like cryptocurrency, but because we see there some of the more advanced attacks that will likely filter out into the rest of the environment at some point. One of the more subtle attacks there is a malware that simply monitors the device clipboard when you copy and paste. And when it detects a string that may be a cryptocurrency wallet address, the malware silently replaces that with their own wallet address so funds get misdirected. While passwordless authentication shouldn't, and I stress shouldn't, use something like the clipboard, that kind of quiet monitor and replace may be something we see analogs of in our own systems. Okay, gotcha. And then um, would you agree with the authors that if phishing becomes harder that the malware-based attacks would become more prevalent? I think it all depends on how we classify attacks in one sense. In general, that vaguely suggests attacks will become more technical, but circling back to one of my earlier points, a lot of this comes back to humans doing things humans do, and the reality that more than anything, what creates opportunities for attackers tend to be each person's cognitive and neurological and emotional frameworks. And I don't think that'll change. Yeah, thanks, Ian. Um, just for timing's sake, um, do you have any final takeaways that you'd like to leave with our audience? And, and Ian and Daniel, both of you can answer this one. Yeah, absolutely. I, I really like this Talos piece for a few reasons. It was well written and well thought out, but it wasn't just the we saw X and determined Y, or we saw X and are expecting Z. It's a great example of applied speculative thinking, something the cybersecurity industry doesn't do enough of, I think. I'm a huge fan of the genre of speculative fiction and the field of speculative design, this wonderful, weird field of design concerned with future problems and solutions and debate, and often more than a little subversion. Uh, even the U.S. Department of Defense taps speculative thinking and fiction, including a partnership with genre writers along those lines and a regular story contest. 
Cybersecurity, on the other hand, when it does get speculative, restricts it to maybe tabletop scenarios and consumer-based design and selling on the go-to-market end. There's creativity in that, don't get me wrong, but I'd love it if InfoSec in particular and the entire industry in general spent a little more time in the clouds, whether technology or go-to-market or whomever. Um, also, just a, a general shout out to the Cisco Talos crew who operate one of the best InfoSec blogs I can point to. Um, it also, uh, the, the Talos blog uh, treads off the beaten path at times. In the run up to Black Hat last year, Talos even published a poem by one of their own that I continue to think about often uh, stark and realistic and human as heck. So, just hats off to Talos. Oh, I see you included the link in our show notes. I'm going to. I'm going to read that later. Any Anything, Daniel, that you want to contribute before we move on? I don't think I can top that. That was a very eloquent summary here by Ian. So hats off. All right. Well, this is, uh, as I was thinking about this, as we were putting this together, usually we ha- we end our articles talking about our hoodie rating. And if you're a newer listener, our hoodie rating is, you know, we're rating on a scale of one to 10 hoodies. And again, we're thinking about a stereotypical hacker in a hoodie where One is not so bad. You can kind of go about your day. And 10 is, oh, my God, it's end of days, you know, type of uh, reaction to something that's going on. But I don't know necessarily if this is hoodie related. I mean, what what do you both think? Uh, Hoodies don't always have to be bad. That's true. They keep they keep you warm. Sometimes they just look they look good sometimes. I am I am such a hoodie fan, except for in this kind of weather. I uh, all year, as soon as it hits late spring, I'm waiting for hoodie weather. Well, so, you know who likes a hoodie still in this weather is teenagers. Oh yeah, true. <laughs> the the youths. True that, um, but yeah, I'm gonna give it uh, five uh, uh, positive hacker hoodies out of ten. Okay, that's fair. You're not gonna. You're not going into any decimals or anything like uh, Taylor does. No, I uh, <laughs> I prefer to stick with real numbers. That's true. I told him in the last episode. Uh, one day I'm gonna make him make a hoodie that he's talking about, and then he has to wear it. <laughs> All right, Daniel. Having heard everything, how many positive hoodies would you be giving this? <laughs> What's what's the total scale? Is it uh, five? So it's one to ten, and we're and one we're talking ten, about right. how because this isn't necessarily bad, we're talking about how hoodies can sometimes be a good thing. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, obviously, I have complicated feelings about this. If it catches on, it could be a net positive, but the road to there sounds you know fraught with unintended consequences so i think i'm going to give it like a five right right in the middle it's certainly a good effort but jury's still out whether that'll ever reach 10 status are you saying five because ian said five no (laughs) i think we just generally agree on those things which is nice but that's not a requirement well i think part of my job i could be wrong is just to give you both a hard time at times absolutely that's part of my job with daniel too Okay. I mean, that's what I show up for work every day. Like, if if nobody gives me a hard time, I'm like, am I doing it wrong? <laughs> of course, of course, I get it. All right. Well, we 
Well, first of all, thank you, Ian, for for all of your thoughts on that. And we will take a quick break and we will be right back with our next article. Stay tuned. Hey, Breaking Badness listener. Tim here from the crew saying thanks for being with us. We hope you enjoy listening to the show as much as we enjoy making it. And if you do enjoy it, well, we hope you might consider doing us a 10 chocolate chip goodie favor and leave a rating and a review of Breaking Badness on your favorite podcast platform. Maybe even more importantly, tell a friend or two about the show. We would be much obliged. And now, on with the episode. All right, and we're back. How was the break? Too short. Too short? Well, we, should we uh, should we talk about our next article? This, this next article, first of all, I, I have entitled it Regulation, No Breaching. Points to whoever can get the reference. It's early 2000s alternative rock. I want to say it's uh, Disturbed. You're so close. Oh. <laughs> Papa Roach. Oh, okay. Gotcha. <laughs> it's, uh, what's the song called? I forget. But it's like, cut my life into pieces. Oh, I think it's Last Resort, isn't it? Yeah. 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 So like the next line is suffocation, no breathing. <laughs> I, so, I caught the vibe. I just so, I'm not brave enough to sing it. Yeah, this one this one was really hard to name. I had to outsource this one to my husband. Uh I'm just like, you know what? I'm I'm having a really hard time thinking of a name for this article because we are talking about, you know, the Security and Exchange Commission voting to adopt new regulations uh, that would require publicly traded companies to notify the government when their IT systems are hacked, uh, you know, disclosing the details uh, around their cybersecurity risk governance in public filings. And it's just like none of, there weren't a lot of uh, punny things that I could pull out of this one. It was, I was like, this one's a serious one. <laughs> so I, I just want everyone to know I'm doing my best over here. Uh, and I am asking for help when needed. So yeah, anyway. That's laudable. No, oh, thank you. <laughs> it's very big of me. Um, so, Daniel, the rules here would require businesses to notify the SEC and public uh, within four days of determining the cybersecurity, if the cybersecurity incident um, has material impact on business operations. Um, but what do we know about what, you know, material means? Like, how, how are we defining what is material? Yeah, that's a million dollar question because it's not specifically defined. Um, in general, I applaud this uh, step forward in that direction. Uh, I have long since been a critic of this hodgepodge of laws and regulations across all the states. Um, in in previous uh, positions, I had to deal with breach notifications of affected users and uh, having to comply with, you know, 50 plus different uh, regulations across the various states and, you know, the District of Columbia and the territories, et cetera, it's, it's not fun. Uh, I think some level of uh, federal regulation, uh, don't send me hate mail, uh, is, is necessary here. Now, 
the the key thing about this new one, it affects publicly traded companies only to start with. So it's a SEC, Security Exchange Commission uh, regulation, so they can regulate publicly traded companies. If you're not publicly traded, this immediately does not apply to you. Now, we know that these things tend to have grow legs and possibly will be expanded further, although that's probably going to require Congress because uh, you know, interstate commerce and all that kind of stuff, uh, there's limited what, what agencies can do uh, through regulation. But I think we're headed in that direction. So the biggest uh, point of contention, and this is where lawyers are going to make you know lots of billable hours, is defining uh, material impact. There's some case law that governs that, but to my knowledge, not specifically in this very sort of niche of things. And uh, I can already see, you know, general counsel and security people at large publicly traded companies squinting and tilting their head. And it's like, okay, we had this thing. Is it material or is it not? And I think depending on your size, you know, if you're a, a big multinational corporation with billions of dollars in revenue and, you know, you have a, you know, few million impact to your bottom line, is that material? Maybe not. So I think that's where the biggest uh, sort of interpretation of this new regulation over the next, you know, year or so will will come from. Wait, you mean outsized impact on the smaller businesses? It's funny how that works. <laughs> yes. <laughs> well, one thing I'm curious about is that the regulations would also require... Ha- you know, the board of directors overseeing risks from cybersecurity threats and identifying a board committee or subcommittee for oversight. But do you know or, or do you have thoughts on, on how a board would oversee risks? Like would a CISO need to be on the board or would these tasks fall squarely on a subcommittee? So I, f- I feel very strongly about this um, and I'm in favor of it. So um a good corporate security program needs to have um, some kind of forum, like a council or a group um, that has oversight. So decisions don't get made in a vacuum and also um, are uh, properly discussed amongst the various different business units. And like, you know, as CISO at Domain Tools, I certainly have uh, strong opinions about how we should be doing things but when I pass policy, that needs to be reviewed somewhere so it doesn't uh, you know, catch other business stakeholders um, off guard, etc. So we have a, a an internal council that um, is made up on, of uh, various different key stakeholders where these kind of decisions get reviewed and uh, at least there's room for discussion uh, in case they seem a little bit uh, too strict or too impacting off the daily operations. So at the board level, I don't know that CISOs need to be members of the board. I'm not sure that that's appropriate, but uh, the CISO should absolutely uh, report to the board on you know, a quarterly basis or whatever your cadence is of the current state of security uh, of the organization, you know, potential risks on the horizon or that have been identified. And in the case of a publicly traded company, I think a subcommittee of the board is absolutely the right um, venue to hear those things. Uh, you know, especially if the board is large, it's a very large uh, corporation. You know, sometimes you can have you know fifteen, twenty people on the board. I don't know that all of their time um, 
needs to be taken up with that. But a subcommittee that then reports to the larger board meeting the highlights is is absolutely appropriate and necessary. Gotcha. Okay. So it's noted that the four, that four day timeline um, is from when the company makes the determination of, of the materi- materiality, which we talked about, not the initial discovery. So what does that say about the timeline as a whole? Because it sounds like it could be so much longer than that four days. Is there a lot to play around with there? Um, I actually was happy to read this. Um, there is a potential you know, risk of you know, undue delay because uh, y- you could just, as a company, take your sweet time to make a determination whether an incident is in fact material or not. But I am a, a big critic of any sort of law or legislation that puts unreasonably short timeframes between the requirement to disclose either to a regulatory entity or the public from the discovery of a breach. I've worked a bunch of pretty gnarly uh, breach scenarios prior to uh, my time here at Domain Tools. And uh, any sort of law regulation that says like, within 72 hours, you must publicly disclose the findings after you've discovered a breach. That's ridiculous. I mean, if you're doing a full forensics investigation, sometimes simply imaging hard drives, which you need to do to do a a solid and objective review of the facts, sometimes that physical process takes 24, 48 hours in and of itself. So you already know that you likely had a breach, but in order to like have any sort of, um, you know, objectively true findings so you can make a decision off takes time. Now I'm not a big fan of saying like, Oh yeah, three months ago, we suffered a breach and we're just now telling you. So there, there has to be a balance, but this like rush to, uh, announcement after the discovery of a breach doesn't serve anybody well because you don't know the exact circumstances in most cases that quickly after. So the four-day reporting timeline could potentially be abused by saying like, okay, we sat on this for a while, but we just couldn't decide on materiality. I hope that you know can kind of get tightened down uh, a little bit. And then the further in the current regulation, there is either a 30-day or a 60-day delay for special emergencies, national security, um, or you know risks to the public, public safety, etc. I'm thinking like um, uh, skate of vulnerabilities, uh, utilities, that sort of thing. So I'm, I'm glad that's being thought of, and there's less uh, room for you know inappropriate use of those delays. Um, you know, for example, Washington state law, which I was part of a um, group that the attorney general at the time in Washington actually uh, asked us in the security community for input when the Washington state breach notification law was crafted. So that was very unusual, but also very welcomed. So the Washington statute, even though it's you know a few years old, has uh, provisions that if you discover a breach and um, you determine that you need more time, you can inform the Washington State Attorney General's office uh, confidentially of that thing, and then you can get a uh, approved delay for public notification in order to do more uh, research and analysis. You've fulfilled your obligations because you've let the regulatory agency know, but you are getting an approval for delay of public disclosure to get more stuff. So something like that is always a, a useful um uh, specification in any sort of regulation. 
I'm going to come down on the opposite side of Daniel, uh, at least uh, in uh, what he was talking about in the beginning. I I actually really like the practicality of the Washington state law. Um, I worry that that um, four-day timeline that starts with the um, determination of materiality will definitely get uh, abused. And literally, uh, security departments and responder departments being told to end every document with a statement like, uh, it is unknown at this time whether this impacts the, uh, whether this materially impacts the business. And just ending every document like that going forward um, while executives are selling stock. And while uh, the um, actual leaked material is, say, on the dark net up for sale and uh, leading to user compromise. So I, I, I don't have faith in the corporate actors that they'll do the right thing. And I, I'd rather see much more active legislation around it and uh, regulatory uh, action. I think that's a fair point, uh, and this is why you know, when first these regulations come out, they hopefully will be amended as we learn some of the potential uh, wiggle room that it may present so that can be tightened down. Um, on the other hand, notification fatigue is a real thing, and uh, you know, I mean, no week goes by that I don't get some kind of email or letter still that says like, oh, your information has been stolen or compromised or inappropriately accessed, and I think the consumer as a whole is just over it. And that's not a reason not to do these notifications, but uh, I think there is a lot of uh feel good intent but like you have to tell everybody right away but the reality of it is actually backfiring in the public in my opinion that people just stopped caring and that's not a great position to be in either i think this kind of leads us into uh my next question was do you do you feel like this creates compliance burden burdens on companies Uh, yes, I mean, I, it's it's falls squarely into the compliance uh, departments, um, and you know, I I'm a big believer that uh, compliance does not security make. So there is uh, sometimes a healthy tension between compliance folks and security folks. Uh, in some organization, they're one and the same, just because you're not large enough to have dedicated functions for those. Um, so it's it, it's going to be uh, tricky conversations, especially in those areas where there are dedicated functions that you know naturally there is a tension. Uh, for those who don't have dedicated compliance functions, it's going to be something that needs to be tracked. Although if you're publicly traded, chances are you're large enough to have at least some rudimentary uh, headcount for those teams. Uh, but I, I could see situations where that adds an additional burden to an already stretched thin workforce uh, that will be interesting to see how that shakes out. From an infosec perspective, you know, should these regulations fall under the SEC? I think the SEC has the largest lever because you know they regulate publicly traded entities and they can actually compel them to do things. Um, it obviously doesn't apply to companies that are not publicly traded. So that's, I think, a caveat. Although if this you know, goes reasonably well, I could definitely see Congress possibly taking some notes and you know, applying some kind of regulatory law to uh, other companies as well. But if it trickles down to like 
ultra small businesses, then it it could be uh, the the compliance overhead and the burden could be disproportionately high. So that's another sort of fine line. You think a large publicly traded company at least has the resources. They may not want to dedicate it to it because it costs them money, but there's really no good excuse why not to. But the smaller the company gets, uh, the more difficult this will be to implement. Okay. And um, so this article came out just a few days ago, but do you have any idea you know, what the community thinks about this? And by community, I mean the InfoSec community. Um, I've seen some basic feedback uh, on the you know, on the internet, the various venues uh, that I think right now are pretty much split half and half, and a lot of people uh, are taking a wait and see approach. Um, I think a lot of our colleagues are working for publicly traded companies, but there's no small amount that don't. So I think we're we're all kind of you know because it is so fresh, um, forming opinions, but our are taking a bit of a wait and see approach. Okay. Excellent. Well, this thank you Daniel for for all the all of your thoughts on this particular article. This is another one though where it's not it doesn't feel like it's like a hoodie rating. It could be a good hoodie rating because it's not quite a goodie necessarily or would you say it is? And for those listening, goodie is, you know, when we equate good things happening in the community to, you know, warm delicious cookies. Yeah, I agree. I don't think this falls strictly into that category. I think if we're going with the previous, you know, good hoodie scale, I'd probably give it about a three. It's it's hard. It's in the right place, but the devil's always in the details. Yeah. In the kangaroo pocket of the hoodie. All right, Ian, for having listened to all this, what about you? What are your thoughts? I think... I'm going to go with a cautiously optimistic four in the same good hoodie scale. <clears throat> I I love and fear the current SEC. Um, I really agree with some of the um, actions that uh, SEC Chair Lena Khan has taken. I love to see the the um, uh, protective and active stance that it takes, but it also keeps me up at night because I don't want to be in uh, in those crosshairs. I think, like Daniel said, the devil's in the details, so we need to see how the discussion goes and how the actual implementation plays out. Okay. That's fair. And maybe um, as more details come out, Daniel, we can have you back to talk about this. I mean, you can talk about other things, too, if you want. <laughs> uh, I'm always happy to be on the okay, podcast. Good. You heard it here first. Daniel will always be on the podcast forever. Um, <laughs> anyway. All right. What do you guys say? We switch gears and we talk about our goal guidance and grievances. Let's do it. Yeah, I'm up for it. Yeah, yeah. So again, if you are a newer listener, Gold Guidance and Grievances is where our co-hosts will share, you know, any anything good that's going on with, within the InfoSec community or not. Sometimes, you know, we, we have something to say about it. That's great. And sometimes, you know, we have something a uh, little off, off topic to talk about. Same thing with guidance. Uh, that's um, anything that we want to share that we feel is helpful. And then of course, grievances, um, you know, anything we're, anything we're having a gripe with, you know, it's, it's kind of says it all, but, um, Ian, let's start with you. All right. 
my gold for this week is uh, Professor Matt Blaze, who's a uh, uh, scientist, a computer scientist, a professor, a security expert of various specialties, and one of the principal people that runs DEFCON's Voting Village. Um, he's also one of my favorite people to follow on social media because he really exemplifies sharing in a bunch of ways. Uh, Kim Zetter recently had an incredibly good wired story on the Tetra uh, radio encryption protocol used by many European emergency services and um, weaknesses uh, in that uh, radio protocol. Place took time on social media to go through similar weaknesses in the P25 protocol used across America and really provide some more local context for that. And uh, as a radio nerd, he tends to do that pretty often. And I'd say uh, uh, he, he does some good public service across a couple different fields. All right. Thanks, Ian. I had to mute my mic for a second because I can see my cat's purring and my mic's picking it up. <laughs> That's quality content right I there. I don't know why you'd mute it. <laughs> uh, yeah, I should just keep it on because she's very sweet. But uh, Daniel, what about your gold guidance and grievances? Well, the the gold I have to comment on is this is probably one of the best times of the year to live in the Pacific Northwest. I'm thoroughly enjoying our nice summer weather. That's warm but not oppressively hot um the days are still kind of long uh i i especially enjoy the um late you know 10 30 p.m sunsets of the late june time frame but we're we're kind of moving away from that yet uh and fingers crossed so far we have ex uh, escaped smoke season which is now and pretty much a new thing uh, although i'm fully expecting that August might still hit us, so I'm trying to enjoy the time right now when it's pretty much perfect. Uh, as far as uh, a guidance, um, I think for those of us who are parents or are a significant adult person in a younger person's life, sometimes getting over yourself a little bit and being silly is is good advice. Uh, my daughter really wanted to see the Barbie movie and I was interested in it, but um, she talked all of us into, you know, dressing up accordingly. And I may or may not have found a shirt that uh, matches the uh, Ken doll that accompanied me to the um, theater. And at first I was like, oh, that's, no, that's not me. That's silly. But I did it and I had a lot of fun. So, um, here we are. Nice. I, I love, love that. that. And then finally, uh, grievance. I have to do a little bit of a rant, and I'm going to be nonspecific, but I'm pretty sure everybody knows what I'll be talking about. I really don't like it when app developers randomly and drastically change the icon of their app on uh, on your phone. So when you are looking for something, and I usually scan visually, and I kind of know where they are on which page or whatever, and then it's something so starkly different that nobody wanted, why are you doing this to me? Um, really don't like it. Knock it off. Am I, yeah, I guess, you know, from a marketing perspective, should we be changing things based on what other things have been changing? You think not, but, you know, maybe it got focus grouped or something, right? Yeah. Okay. I like how you moved on really quickly from your guidance to your grievance. <laughs> Don't think we didn't notice. <laughs> yeah, I'm, wait I'm waiting for the shirt pick in the uh, uh, 
show notes. I love that, though. Like, yeah, like, you know, just thinking about, you know, other men in my life that, you know, they're they're good guys, but I don't know if they would have, you know, done that. And and I, I think that's really sweet. I, I had fun. I'm not going to lie. It is fun. It is fun. So I also went to the Barbie movie. Sorry, Ian. Uh, I know you haven't been yet. Um, but I didn't I didn't dress up and I should have. It would have been fun. But my husband did wear pink. And I did ask him because he dressed uh, before, like in the morning for work. I'm like, you're wearing your pink shirt. Is that for Barbie? And he goes, yeah, it's for Barbie. <laughs> nice. <laughs> you got to be silly once in a while. Oh, yeah. It's fun. It's kind of like it's this kind of stuff. Like, it's really fun to be part of the zeitgeist sometimes. Like uh, when the Cavs won uh, the championship, do you know how much fun it is high-fiving strangers? It is so fun. Do you know how much fun it is to light cars on fire? Oh, wait. Wait, 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 wait. wait. <laughs> That's Philadelphia and not Cleveland. Back up, back up. <laughs> yeah, Boston, too. Hypothetically. Hypothetically speaking, yes. When, yeah, we we don't do that in Cleveland. We just, you know, light our rivers on fire. When, when they grease the light poles, regardless whether they're going to win <laughs> or lose, you know, you have an interesting town on hand. Exactly. So I uh, I muted prematurely, uh, so I didn't do my guidance or grievance. Do you want me to do those? I sure do. All right. You just well, like you just ended so in, like, <laughs> like and I was Sorry. like, all right, I believe I believe you that you're done. <laughs> <laughs> my uh, my guidance is off a uh, a flow chart that I saw this week, which sounds like the most boring thing ever. Um, but the flow chart at the top says, I want to do this. And then it's got two paths leading from it. The first says, do it. And the second says, but I'm scared. And the response to, but I'm scared is do it scared. And I'm highlighting that as guidance because it's one of the hardest lessons that I ever had to learn, but it changed everything. Um, I realized I couldn't wait for a, a time that I wouldn't be scared to do a thing, but that I could, um, in most circumstances, just do it scared. And that brought a whole new rich quality of uh, life to uh, me as someone who has struggled with mental illness, has struggled uh, on, on a number of levels. So if you want to do a thing and you're scared, just do it scared. Or like, even if it's not perfect, do it anyway. Yeah, like, yeah, hundred percent. Would you agree with that? Like, some stuff that stops you from doing the thing is, well, I'm not going to be able to do it perfectly. Yeah, and that's still uh, at times I struggle with that because I want to be really good at anything I do, and uh, when you start a thing, obviously you're not going to be good at it. But um, just going in and managing your expectations for yourself can be a game changer. So uh, that and the, the old adage, let the uh, perfect not be the enemy of the good. You want to know something really sweet? So like, yeah. so I entered a bake-off this weekend. As and one does. I was like, yeah, as one does, because I'm just, that's just where I am in my life right now. Um, no, it's for charity. And I was just like, that sounds like fun. I could, I could do that. I might have a shot at winning and I, I did not win, but like I shared that I did it 
you know, with, you know, my network and my network was so supportive of that. I couldn't believe it. Like everyone's just like, that's good that you even tried. Like, like some people, yeah. yeah, Some people are like, I wouldn't have even thought to do that. So yeah, that's huge. Just uh, moving beyond your comfort zone is, uh, is like training a muscle. So it's a practice and you have to, you know, you have to do it uh, to a certain point, it's not mm-hmm. always going to work well, but doing it can always be uh, really beneficial. So that's awesome. Yeah. Uh, I, I wouldn't know where to start with a bake-off. I can help you with that. Uh, <laughs> but I'm so sad we can't end on this note. We still have your grievance. We do still have my <laughs> grievance. We should have and... We should have flipped it. <laughs> <laughs> my, my grievance is just going to be summer heat because I... I turned my fans off in my office so that they don't come in as background noise. And I'm just sitting here sweating, um, which is gross. And I apologize to the entire uh, listening audience. It's okay. It, it's, it happens to the best of us. <laughs> All right. You know, just real well, quick to circle back on, on Callie's thing. So we don't yeah. have to end on a terrible hotness uh, note. Yeah. I, I am very delighted to hear that that was the reaction from your network because I think that's a bit of a generational thing. Um, you know, I, I am slightly older than you, and I think you are. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, I realize we never <laughs> see each other in person, so it's probably hard to tell. But uh, yes, I am a Gen Xer, and that sort of thing certainly was not part of our, you know, coming of age. There was very much. Uh, negative feedback ruled the the general tenor of things, and you know, being supportive of each other uh, was not as big of a deal as it is these days. So I I have hope for the future because I definitely see that also with my kids, which are like two more generations uh, removed, where that's much more the the, the general tenor. I I always uh, so my son runs uh, track uh, uh, for school in in the spring and. Uh, the amount of positive feedback that even like the runners that come in like way late, you know, everybody's cheering with them like, yeah, you can do it, etc. Growing up, um, those people would have been booed 100%. So oh, yeah. it's definitely a, a positive change that I think is, is better for everybody. Yeah, I think with millennials and after. Um, I was born in 82, which apparently makes me an elder millennial. And uh, I think um, my generation started sort of feeling their way around it. We weren't great about it, but especially uh, generations a little younger than that, some of the younger uh, millennials in particular and past that, um, really understand the point of supporting their peers a lot better than uh, a lot of us did growing up. I kind of feel like it's a newer thing, though, because, you know, like, like with uh, your children and, you know, school sports, you know, I didn't necessarily feel the support back then. But I like, I do think it's a positive outcome of social media, you know, and there's so many drawbacks to it. But I do think some of like, there's always awful people, you know, trolling on there. But I do kind of feel like, the rise of that empathy is kind of coming with, you know, Instagram and, you know, I I know you both are not fans of TikTok, but there is like a lot of supportive feedback on the, on those channels, which is, is pretty delightful to see. So 
do you think it's related to uh, younger generations being more likely to rate five stars on gig economy apps? That's a good question. I wonder if it's just it's part of that same altruistic thread where uh, even if it's the worst service you get, uh, you're going to give that idiot five stars so they can continue to put food on the table. I think I, I think there is something to that because I have seen I saw somebody you know post they you know got a terrible haircut and they still paid for it and they still tipped because they understand you know it's it's rough out there. Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Yeah. So yeah, interesting thought. But yeah, that's that's a nice way to end the show. How about that? How you, about we, that? We were able to do it, yeah. And if, uh, if you're ever in Cleveland, I do like to cook. So, <laughs> so uh, even though I didn't win, um, everything that I made uh, was gone by the end. So um, the I, I did win the popular vote. I just didn't win any awards. <laughs> nice. The yeah. Electoral College... Uh faulted you i know right it's 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 very it's it's political man (laughs) but but yeah so um ian and daniel thank you so much for being with me today um i i really appreciate you uh taking the time to talk about your articles and thank you for your gold guidance and grievances um and uh yeah we will you know hopefully be talking to both of you again real soon yeah, yeah, thank you. Pleasure always, as always. Uh, always great. Yeah. Perfect. All right. Well, thank you to our listeners, and we will see you again next week for more Breaking Badness. Thank you. That's about all we have for this week. You can find us on Twitter at Domain Tools. All of the articles and IOCs mentioned today will be included in our blog post which can be found at domaintools.com slash resources slash podcasts. Catch us every Wednesday at 9 a.m. Pacific time when we publish our podcast and blog. We'll see you next week on another episode of Breaking Badness. Until then, remember, don't drink and click.